Let's open the Word of God to 1 Peter 5, 5. You know, as an OSU fan, I'm going to uh, salute the uh, OU Sooners for putting a massive beatdown on the Buckeyes last night. And, I, you know, I, I say that knowing that the vast majority of Oklahomans today, when they think of the word Baker, they are thinking Baker Mayfield. But we have a Baker here today who's got the heart of a lion. I mean, he has a fighting spirit, uh, and his parents have a lot of faith. And uh, great surgeons and uh, the providence of God can do some wonderful things. And so we're very, very delighted. I will never forget this day uh, uh, to have Baker here for the first time. And any time I hear about Baker, uh, as an OSU fan, um, what can I say? I'm not all that crazy that Baker is so good, Baker Mayfield, but I'm always going to think of Baker Drake before I think of Baker Mayfield, for sure. And I mean that sincerely, because Baker Mayfield is kind of one of my nightmares, actually. <laughs> okay, let's read verses 1 through 5. We looked at the first four verses of chapter 5 last time, and we'll focus on verse 5 today, but just for the context, let's look at the first uh, five verses here. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you in your local churches as your fellow elder, and this is Peter, who was right there with Christ the whole time, uh, identifying with just average elders, quote-unquote. And Peter says, I'm also a witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed to us as believers and he tells Homer and Dale and David and Ron and Brad, in our case, as elders of TBF, shepherd the flock of God among you under the, the great shepherd, Jesus Christ. We're just little under-shepherds. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight over the local church, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, and not as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And if you do that, you're going to get special recognition uh, at uh, the judgment seat of Christ. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. It's like a medal you get in the military. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders in your local church, And all of you, all the non-elders in the church, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. We're going to focus on one verse today and deal with one of the most important concepts that you will find in the Scripture about the spiritual life of Gibson Lovett or Jenny Heath or uh, uh, Julie Miller. And we're going to find out that our spirit, number one spiritual enemy is deep within Sharon Bearden. That's her, her, her worst spiritual nightmare is within her. And that's true for uh, piano players and guitar pickers and people who can't play musical instruments. It's true for me and you and Billy Graham. Spiritual enemy number one is deep within us. Uh, and that was true for Peter, James, and John also. But we're not going to just think about the enemy. We're going to think about the antidote. We're going to think about the solution, uh, putting all things under the lordship of Jesus Christ. So very practical, applicable to everybody in the room. And so let's pray we'll be teachable, as always, to God's word 
Let's remember our peace officers, firefighters, and active military. Okay, let me lead us in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this new day you're giving us and this new week you're giving us and the first significant thing we're doing on the first part of this first day of the new week is uh, gathering together, not just on this corner, but all over the city and this world to celebrate the risen Christ, to feed on the word, to worship, uh, to fellowship, to pray and exalt in and uh, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, we pray, Father, you would give us a deep insight into this passage. I pray the Holy Spirit who inspired this text would illuminate to our hearts and minds as we open our hearts and minds to you and your will. We pray for those who serve us, protect us, um, their spouses and their families, and we pray especially for uh, believing Christian, believing, believing peace officers or firefighters and, and active military and their families, that you keep them strong, keep their testimony consistent, and let them be uh, great examples of what a soldier should look like or what a sailor should look like or what a firefighter should look like or police officer should look like. And we thank you for the way you protect us through them. Uh, we pray especially for those in the path of uh, hurricane or the hurricane in, uh, toward the Florida area, Irma. Uh, you know where it's going. The uh, weathermen make predictions. But we pray, Father, you would, uh, as you tell us in uh, Proverbs 10.25, when the whirlwind passes, the wicked are no more, but the righteous have an everlasting foundation. And I pray that uh, you know, as we've uh, thought about... Uh, the way you providentially are working in what surely is the approach of the end times. Uh, we ain't seen nothing yet, but I pray that uh, this uh, disaster might be modified, uh, that you might especially strengthen Christians and churches to serve before, during, and after. And I pray that uh, the dire predictions might be um, not as uh, not be fulfilled as literally as they might, but we know you're in charge of that. And as we've just sung... Um, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow in the state of Florida into the eastern United States, but we believe you hold your hand uh, sovereignly over all things, and we rest in that. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. Yeah, we're going to talk about humility today, and I tell you what, uh, Ron Miller recently uh, gave me a very wonderful compliment. We were in front of a group of people, and he said, uh, my friend Brad McCoy is a humble man but only because he has a lot to be humble about. And so uh, Ron is one of the ones that keeps me humble around here. And so to warm up our capacity for abstract thinking, Seth, and uh, also to further ensure my humility, here are top five signs you must be a preacher. Number five, you've never preached on TV, but only because every time you try to at home, your wife always makes you get down before you break something. One time you totally lost control of yourself and almost took up an offering at your mom's 80th birthday party. <laughs> You're the only one in the church who attends Sunday services dressed like an NBA basketball coach. So, you know, you got Phil Jackson and Michael Jordan, and then you got me and Dale. You know, so <laughs> Dale's Michael Jordan and I'm Phil Jackson. Every couple of years, you fantasize about firing the entire church and forming a one-man congregational search committee. That would be awesome, man. 
And then number one, number one sign you might must be a preacher. You specialize in prison ministry, but only because all nine of your children are in prison. Now, I realize that would be a bad one to end on, so I'm going to give you an alternative ending. You've suffered from a recurring nightmare that you were preaching a long, boring sermon until one Sunday morning you woke up and realized you really were. So that was a, that was bad when that happened. Uh, spiritual enemy number one is deep within us, and that's not good news. And last time we saw in verses one through four, that elders are to be examples of spiritual maturity and spiritual stability as they serve the Lord and others in and through the local church willingly, givingly, and servingly. And now on the heels of that, and very much connected to that, Tammy, we have verse 5, speaking to the younger men in the church, but ultimately to all the non-elders in the local church, warning us and them that our number one spiritual enemy is something we must recognize and subdue. Now, it's been a while since we've talked about the structure of this book, so let's look at the purpose statement of the book, which is found right in the middle of the book, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. We have Paul uh, Peter here just putting his papers on the table, telling you what he's trying to do in this book. He says, Behold. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers. We're not supposed to look like the world. We're not supposed to think like the world. Anymore, that makes us extremely offensive and maybe even illegitimate. But we're, we're supposed to be salt and light, not uh, um, candy and popcorn, right? I urge uh, Michael Birch or Nicole uh, Love or Debbie McCoy as spiritual aliens and strangers in this world to abstain from fleshly lust. Lust we tend to think of sexual things, but that word epithumia just means strong desires to do anything that's wrong. Uh, so it, can, it doesn't necessarily just include sexual activity that's outside of marriage. Uh, abstain from f- fleshly lust from following through on your urges, which would be sinful, uh, which wage war against your soul. But instead, for every negative in the Bible that is normally a positive and right in the same context, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, the unbelievers, so that in the thing in which they slander you, you actually believe in Christ and morality and truth and little things like that, as evildoers, as repressive, as backward, hateful, hate groups, right? They may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation when they finally see Christ. So that's our purpose statement. And the book really is controlled by that statement. The first part of the book that leads to that was talking to believers who are facing persecution and kind of doing the basic review of how faith and work should should work out in the Christian life. Now we're in the second part because we're in chapter 5 and we're looking at faith under fire 102, submission, which is a big concept in this whole section of the book, and suffering, whether it be uh, persecution or hurricanes or cancer or bad work conditions or no no job at all, whatever it is. That's what we're looking at here. Now, here's my paraphrase of what we just read. As spiritual aliens and short-timers on earth, uh, David Bearden and Kylene Driggs should not be controlled by our emotions and our feelings and our urges, but we should consistently live our life, our faith, centered on our Lord Jesus Christ so that unbelievers who slander us because we are believers will see the reality of Christ in our lives and ultimately glorify God 
by coming to him in faith. So in many ways, Anthony, you've got a much more relevant platform to live your faith and impact the world than I do. Because once you become a, a minister, the average American sees you as a professional Christian, you know, as kind of a uh, eternal life salesman, uh, internal life insurance salesman, and they kind of see us differently. I get to do some things you probably can't do, but you you have a lot of uh, strategic contacts with people who need who won't come to church but need to see Christ. Now I would say the take home Carol for this book is basically he's telling your sister in uh, Boca Raton, he's telling you in uh, Duncan, keep on trusting the Lord even when there doesn't keep on trusting and obeying the Lord, both of them, even when there doesn't seem to be any earthly reason you can't come up with one to keep on trusting and obeying the Lord. Okay, now it's important to emphasize this book is written to believers. By a believer, he's not questioning their eternal salvation. He is urging them to continue in the faith under fire. Uh, the gospel is the good news that even though all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death, that's the bad news. The good news is because Christ died for our sins, we don't have to die in our sins. And the risen Christ is the issue and the issuer of eternal life. Buddha can't do it for you. Uh, Joseph Smith can't do it for you. The risen Christ is the only one. And we receive salvation as a free gift um, by God's grace through faith in Christ alone. And then the good works that come out of our Christian life are not the cause or the root. They're the fruit or the effect. Okay, back to First Peter chapter 5. After talking to the elders of the church and urging them to be a stable and mature and to serve willingly, givingly, uh, uh, and uh, servingly uh, in the local church. We now have this contrast where he flips and talk, starts talking to younger men in the church, and he's telling them, beware of enemy number one. And here's the big question, what's spiritual enemy number one? I mean, I want to know what that is if I'm sitting where you are. Well, it's Self-centered pride. That's what it is. It's what uh, many songwriters have called foolish pride, right? Uh, it, when you analyze the Beatles records or Beatles songs, I think they published, what, 238 songs, plus or minus five. Uh, if you want to put free as a bird and real love in there, I guess it goes up a couple. But uh, they talk a lot about love, but they also talk a lot about pride. I guess if God can talk through uh, a donkey to Balaam, God can even use a pagan rock and roll artists to speak to us. And even they knew that pride was a problem. But look at our verse here. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders in your local church and all of you, not just the younger men, but everybody in the church. Clothe yourselves with humility because that's the antidote for pride toward one another for God as opposed to the proud. And he uh, gives grace to the humble. So why would Peter include this kind of exhortation uh, in Scripture here? Younger men be subject to your elders. Why would he be telling the younger men to do that? Because some of them are going rogue. Some of them because uh, they've got the idealism and the energy and the good looks that uh, you have when you're younger have not been respecting the elders in their church. Uh, they, they think they're cooler than the elders of the church, and they don't respect and respond to them fully like they should. And uh, that's a problem. Now, you know, we're talking about the elders. Remember, we said, uh, based on what he tells us in the first four verses here, the elders are, uh, along with the deacons, serve the church, but the elders in particular 
uh, exercise authority and oversight over the entire operation of the church. We emphasize that you're always going to see references to elders in the plural. You don't have an elder over a church. You have elders over the church because you don't want any one person to have veto power. And we've all got blind spots and we have a sin nature and we have weaknesses in those areas. But now he's telling young men and ultimately says everybody in the church to do two things. But they're not really two things. Uh, I think it's easy to read that and say, okay, younger men are to be subject to the elders and everybody else is supposed to clothe themselves with humility. But in fact, that's not really two different things. One and two, command one, command two. What you've got really is a 1A and a 1B. Younger men, and really everybody in the church, but apparently in this group he's talking to, some of the younger men have not been as respectful and responsive to the leaders as they should in their church. Uh, he's telling them particularly to be subject to their elders in their L church. What does that stand for? Local church. Uh, talking about submission. But then he speaks to everybody, including the younger men. He says, clothe yourselves with humility. And rather than seeing two commands there, Ken, I would say you've really got uh, two interactive dynamics. The clothe yourself with humility is the root, is the cause of the effect he's especially urging the younger men in the churches, the Jeff Skinners, uh, the Michael Birches, the Anthony Foremans in the church to do. He says, you know, if you clothe yourself with humility, you'll be able to submit, as submission is kind of an, an effect of what he's calling them to do. Now, and we talked about submission a lot in this part of the book of First Peter because it's a major sub-theme. We call that a motif. A motif's a major sub-theme. Uh, the big theme is the 2, 11, and 12, urging to hang in there, keep on trusting and obeying. But we've seen this word a lot, and I think you've heard me say this before, but it bears repeating. The Greek word, the Greek verb for submission is hupotasso, which is really kind of a lot of fun to say, you know, hupotasso. And uh, tasso means to put, place, or throw, and uh, hupa means under. So submission is to place under. And that's important because Submission cannot be forced. You can coerce people to do things if you're big enough, mean enough, if you've got enough firepower. But submission cannot be forced. Submission must be freely given. So it can be commanded. Uh, and here we're thinking about submitting to the appropriate leadership in the local church. But submission is an expression of spiritual strength, not physical or spiritual weakness. It cannot be forced. It must be freely given. So he doesn't tell the elders, be sure the young men submit to you. He tells the younger men and everybody else, you need to submit. You need to recognize and respond in a positive way to those who are legitimate leaders uh, of your local church, of your community, uh, and your family, and all kind of various areas of life. But he's talking about local church here. So that's important to remember. Uh, as I say, this is a key part of the second section of the book, go back to chapter 213, the very first verse after that purpose statement. We see a, a first use of this verse, hupotasso, to submit. And he says very famously in 1 Peter 2.13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake and as a function of your spiritual life to every human institution, whether it's a king or a Caesar sitting on the throne in Rome, which it was when Peter's writing this, and it's Nero. Hey, listen, Dr. Deeg, Nero wasn't a Christian. 
Nero wasn't born again. Nero wasn't a nice person. Nero wasn't a Republican. He wasn't a conservative. Okay, But the basic general principle is submit yourself to the powers that be. Whether it's a king as one in authority at a national empire level or regional leaders like governors is sent by God uh, for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. But this is the will of God. That by doing right, you'll silence the ignorance of foolish people who some Christians are saying, don't pay your taxes, don't submit to the Democratic president, don't submit to Donald Trump as president. Uh, that's not uh, the way of the word. It's the way of the world. It's not the way of the word. Look at 2.18. We're thinking about submission as something that's an expression of spiritual strength. It's something that can't be forced. It must be freely given here by a believer to legitimate authorities. And here we're told, household servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not just to them if they're believers, but even if they're unbelievers, not just to the boss at Taco Bell who's nice and friendly and never cusses, but also to those who are unreasonable, who are harsh, hard to deal with. You ever had a boss that's hard to deal with? I'm sure many of us have. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. In the same way you wise be submissive to your own husbands. We're not... We're not saying all women are second to, to all men or submit to all men, but in the marital uh, team, we've got God as the commander-in-chief. We've got Seth as the CO, Tammy as the XO. CO means commanding officer. XO means executive officer. It's the kids who are the buck privates. It's not Seth as the five-star general. Tammy is a buck private. It's God's the head of the chain of command. And we've got a CO and an XO working together uh, for the common good. Look at 3.7. You husbands in the same way, same way as what? As what he told the wives. They're supposed to submit to the husband. Husbands are supposed to submit to the Lord in consistency and awareness with the needs of their wives. In the same way wives submit to you, you submit to God as you uh, are the quarterback on the team. Live with your wives in an understanding way. Ken, that's in the Greek, that's... Uh, uh, that's katalogan, which, logan, which means according to knowledge. So don't keep making the same mistakes over and over again. I got a feeling Carol will probably give you instruction to help you to do that. So write those things down. Um, and she hadn't been talking to me about this, but just I got a feeling, just I can tell you look guilty over there. No, I'm kidding. Uh, live with your wives and just put your, so Homer, just read this, live with Pam in an understanding way. Uh, as with a weaker vessel. That doesn't sound very nice, but Seth, let me ask you, which is the weaker vessel? A $500 million Ming vase or a empty uh, Campbell soup can? Which is the weaker, more exquisite, more fragile vessel? It's the Ming vase. Tammy's a Ming vase. You're just an empty soup can, okay? So you, you treat them with, with respect and concern based on who they are and how God has made them, and show your wife honor as your spiritual, ontological equal, as a fellow heir of the grace of life. And if you don't do that, your fellowship with your wife will be hurt, and your fellowship with God will be hurt. Uh, He says, do the right thing in that regard so your prayers will not be hindered, because you're not going to be tight with the Lord if you're being uh, unkind, and illegitimate in your treatment to your wife. Uh, so that's pretty important there, isn't it? 
In the same way, the Christian wife submits to God as part, in part by submitting to her husband as the CO, commanding officer of the marriage team. The husband is to submit to God and show his wife godly deference uh, to her needs and sensitivities as he respects her and serves her. What does Paul say about husbands and wives? Love your wife like Christ loved the church. Okay, I don't think many any Christian wives will have any problem submitting to their husband if he's living out that ethic. The problems come when husbands are illegitimate in the way they treat their wives, and wives are not to be punching bags emotionally or physically for their husbands. We'll talk more about that just in passing in a moment. But uh, submission is obviously a big, big factor here in this book. And uh, he urges the younger men in particular, because they're probably the ones having problems doing this, to submit to the elders in their local church. Uh, and, and yet, as I indicate in this slide here, the, the, real, the cause or the root of that kind of freely given submission it goes back to a humility. And that's really, rather than a self-centered pride, we need a Christ-centered humility as we live the Christian life. But let me say one more thing about submission, and I love this. Go back to 2.13, hold your place in First Peter, and that's the first place he uses this term, hupotasso, to submit, to place under, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And the first thing he says is the king or the Caesar, and we're talking about Nero in Rome. Peter's in Rome when he writes this book, so he knows very well. And Nero, within a year or two or three after Peter writes this book, has Peter executed, crucified upside down. So he's saying, in general, submit to the powers that be. However, go to Acts, and I hope I wrote this down, because I always forget uh, the citation. In fact, I've got a slide. That'll help me. Look at uh, Acts 5.29. Now, we're not talking about submitting to the Roman government, but here in Acts, the early days of the church, we're talking about submitting to the religious leaders of Judaism in and around Jerusalem, And you know the story, in the early days after the resurrection ascension, the apostles are in and around Jerusalem, and they're brought in by the religious leaders and told not to do this anymore, stop, cease and desist, order, stop talking about Jesus. But they continue to talk about him. They get rearrested for the second or third time here, depending on how you break it down. And look at Acts 5, 28, 29. Now remember, we're going to see Peter say something in verse 29, Anthony, that seemingly contradicts what he says in 1 Peter 2.13. He says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And he lists all kinds of different human leaders. And yet, look at an exception to this. And how do we put these together? Uh, They're arrested in Acts 5. I'm looking at verse 28. And uh, looking at the apostles, they say, hey, we gave you strict orders. And we are the powers that be over Judaism here in this region not to continue teaching in this name, in the crucified, risen Jesus' name. And yet you've turned Jerusalem, you fill Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than man. So how do you put that together? In First Peter 2, he says, submit to human leaders, including here religious slash political leaders, the Sanhedrin, which is kind of a combination of both. But in the book of Acts, he said, no, we're not going to do what you told us to do. You know the answer, don't you? The general principle is, 
always submit to legitimate human authority, even though they're flawed and messed up, until or unless it's a direct sin. Always submit to human authority until or unless it's a direct sin to submit to human authority, and then you respectfully say, sorry, sir, I can't do that. And that's what the apostles did uh, here. So that's not a contradiction. It's just a general principle with specific exceptions because God's always at the top of the chain of command. So it's not right that wives have to be punching bags for their husbands because it says submit. And there have been Christian husbands or uh, professing Christian husbands who will quote that verse all day long while they're pounding on their wives emotionally or physically and trying to justify you just... In fact, there was one famous uh, traveling Bible teacher in the 70s and 80s who uh, was well-regarded by a lot of people who said, always submit to the chain of command and let God take care of the problems. Huh? If you're serving, you're, you're an enlistee in the German army in 1930 because you... Uh, want to defend your country, and then Hitler takes over a few years later and says, okay, fix your bayonets, we're going to go stab Jewish babies. Well, I went to the seminar, he said, always submit this to the chain of command and let God take care of the problems. No, you don't do that. You say, sorry, sir, I can't do that, which probably means you're going to get a bayonet right then, but that's the price you pay. So we need a little sub, you know, the Bible doesn't mean what it says. It means what it means by what it says the way it says it. In context. And so this is why you need people like James and me to keep you straight. Okay? So uh, the the root of submission is humility. So let's try to describe or define this. This is my working definition on this. It's not ideal, not perfect, but I think it helps you understand where the Scripture is coming from. Humility is the uh, Greek word tapainos, which is kind of fun to say too. You've learned good things to say. They're just fun to say. Uh, but I would define humility, and that basic word means an appropriate recognition of one's physical and spiritual weaknesses and limitations, and therefore his or her need for God and God's grace. What's the opposite of humility? Starts with a P. That would be pride. And that's kind of an overinflated conception of yourself and your needs and your abilities. Humility is an appropriate recognition of our limitations, our flaws, our weaknesses, and therefore our need for God and His grace. Very important to get a fix on that. And humility is the core of spirituality, both the reception of salvation and the expression of salvation in Christian discipleship. It's the at the, the very heart of so much of what God wants to do in us, in our church, and in the world. Uh, Go to Luke 18. We're going to turn fast and think fast because we... You're almost finished with this message, if you can believe that. Let's look at Luke 18. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if I've covered this. Uh, Michael and, and Anthony might remember. Almost every time we go to Puebla, I'll spend some time in this passage. And I don't remember if we ever did that in one of those living rooms this time. But I love this passage. This is Jesus talking about how salvation works. Uh, Luke 18, verse 9 through 14. And Jesus told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. In their own self-centered pride, they thought they could earn salvation by obeying the rules well enough. And they viewed everybody else who wasn't trying to climb the ladder of good works and earn salvation with contempt. Jesus says two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, 
who was dedicated to the proposition he could earn his own way to heaven by being a good Jew, and the other tax collector. That was a Jewish person collecting taxes for the Romans. Uh, they were in collusion, if I can use that term, with the hated, oppressing Roman Empire. The Pharisee stood uh, at the temple precincts and was praying to himself. He's praying to himself, not to God, but trying to impress people out loud. God, I thank you I'm not like other people. I thank you I'm so righteous and so good. I always do the right thing. And I'm not a swindler. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. And I'm certainly not like this guy, Lord. You see this despicable piece of humanity over here? Uh, and he's thinking about the task collector. And uh, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes on all I get. But the task collector, who based on religious assumptions, is so far away from God, he's not even worth mentioning hardly unless you're going to put him down. But the task collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven because of humility and contrition and awareness that he needs salvation, something he can't do himself, was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, this man went back home justified rather than the self-righteous, proud, arrogant Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself uh, will be exalted. In another place, in Matthew 18, Jesus says, unless you become like a little child, you're not going to enter the kingdom. Just active, receptive trust in the sufficiency of Christ is something a child can do, uh, but it's hard for human beings who are impressed with themselves to do it all. So humility is at the very core of salvation. It's also at the very core of discipleship, living out our salvation. Turn to Matthew 20, but while you're turning to Matthew 20, I'll notice the verse right after the one we're looking at today in First Peter. It says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Don't be a self-promoter. Don't be constantly impressed with how impressed you are with God. This is a big occupational hazard among uh, ministers. Uh, a lot of these guys, a lot of times it's the bigger the church, the more impressed they are with how impressed they are with God. And if you're impressed with how impressed you are with God, you're not impressed with God, you're impressed with yourself. And that's that's a big problem uh, because a lot of times we get, a, and I'm not in a mega church, but we get a lot of positive feedback from people who appreciate what we're trying to do. And you can kind of let it go to your head. And that's, that's a problem. Uh, Last Sunday, Jamie and I went to uh, South Tulsa Bible Church, or Baptist Church, I should say. I wish it was a Bible church, actually, but next best thing, uh, because the the guy had been the assistant minister at First Baptist, where Jamie typically goes in the family, um, is now the senior pastor at the South uh, Tulsa Baptist Church, and he had a house full of people. Jamie did, so just the two of us snuck out and went to church. But uh, uh, he has... Uh, gone from uh, being a, a kind of on the totem pole of a big church to being the leader of a medium-sized church, really nice facility, impressive. And he's such a godly, kind guy, really good in the pulpit, but, you know, just a, just down to earth, and you can just actually talk to him like a person. So I hadn't gone to his head, so I was really glad to see that. That's great. Uh, Matthew, not that it's my job to make these decisions, you understand, but look at uh, Matthew 20. I love this. Uh we're coming to Jerusalem for the last uh, week, and of course the disciples are arguing who's going to be in charge of the kingdom under Jesus, who's going to be chief of staff and secretary of state. And Jesus says, verse 25, uh, calls them to himself and said, 
Uh, you know the way the, the world thinks. The rulers of the Gentiles just lord it over other people. They love to have more power. They love to have all the eyeballs on them and tell them how great they are. But it's not to be this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you spiritually, great in Jesus' eyes, should be the servant. And, you know, we've got a group of elders that are excellent servants. They do more than the average bear. They sacrifice more. They give more. They're just available 24-7. Uh, you see that in our leaders or lay leaders around here. Uh, but whoever wishes to be first among you should be your slave. Just as the Son of Man who washes their feet at the Last Supper did not come to be served, but why did he come? To serve, give his life a ransom for many. So humility is at the heart of so many good things, uh, but we have a natural tendency to want to exalt ourselves, or we have this innate pride in our sin nature which explains the tendency to uh, mess this up, but it doesn't excuse it. Now notice, go back to 1 Peter 5, and we're almost done with this one verse. Um, and the reason for all these things he's saying, submit uh, based on your humility, because, for means because there, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That's actually a quote from Proverbs uh, chapter 3. So we should already know that. But uh, in Proverbs 6, Anthony, this is a good good thing to know. In, in Proverbs 6, 16 through 19, you have a list of six, really seven things that God hates. And if you if you got a new job, say if you got a new job somewhere and one of the your coworkers pulls you aside and there's like he says, Look, the boss is a good guy, but there's like seven things he absolutely hates. If you show up late, if your shoes aren't shined, if you don't have your badge on straight. Just avoid those things and you're fine with them. If you get that kind of heads up, Nancy, you're going to try to avoid those things. So these are seven things God hates. And what's the very first thing on the list? There are six things the Lord hates. No, seven. He's going to say lying twice. So there's six things, seven things on the list, but two, but six ideas here. But what's the very first thing on the list? Seven things God hates. Haughty eyes. What well, we just saw in Matthew 18, right? Or Luke 18 in the Pharisee. And so if you drive out of here, and you see some some guy down on his luck uh, hitchhiking on Highway 81. You kind of look look your down your nose at him. Uh, you may be right where you're not supposed to be. Haughty eyes, lying tongue, hands that kill the innocent, a heart that plots evil, feet that race to do wrong, a false witness. We got lying and a false witness. That's why we have seven things in the list, but only six ideas. And one who sows discord in a family. The, I think the first one, haughty eyes, and the second one, sowing discord in a family, including a church family, those go together. The kind of people that typically think my way or the highway, and sometimes it is the pastor, and sometimes it is an elder, and sometimes it's somebody who doesn't have a title, but they pretty much have a lot of influence, and they want something that's probably secondary to be their way, or they'll burn the whole thing down or ruin it or try to character assassinate people. That can happen. And it goes back to a lack of humility. So humility is so important um, in the Christian life. And it frees us up to love, which is what this thing's all about anyway, as a Christian. Love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, strength, and love others as yourself. Now, the problem is we have within us what is commonly translated uh, sin, uh, or flesh, I should say, but really it should be sin nature. Galatians 5 says, walk in the spirit and you won't carry out the desires of the flesh is what you usually see. But that's a word that means, sarks means sin nature. This 
in, in this inherent bent we have to be sinful, selfish, and lazy. It's deep within our spirit, and it doesn't go away when we trust Christ. Jesus does not do a sin nature ectomy on us when we come to faith. So we have this battle between focusing on him and living in humility or focusing on ourself and being uh, characterized by pride. And I think pride can be, let me define pride. And it's important, by the way, I said I'm almost done, but give me five more minutes. Uh, watch this. Again, it doesn't mean what it says. It means what it means by what it says. Somebody can, uh, for me, uh, what I do here never has a beginning or an end. It just constantly goes, and I like it, and I'm thinking whenever, when I get off this horse, I'm going to miss just constantly the phone calls and everything, because ultimately you can juggle all this stuff, and it's really a lot of fun to see how God works through all this stuff. But uh, one thing I do at home every week or every other week is just mow the grass. And I got shamed, by the way, you're going to be glad, Scott, to hear this. I went ahead and bit a, bit a, bit a bullet, and I bought me a weed eater, okay? I was kind of being shamed by my neighbors, especially my friend across the street who's so sick when he's out there weeding in his yard. I'm thinking, if he can, if Buck can go weed his, eat his yard, maybe I should weed eat mine. So anyway, I gave my yard the once over yesterday. If you want to come by, we live at 2509 Virginia. Don't knock on my door because I'm too busy and important to talk to you after I preach on Sundays. But that is a bad example of a lack of humility. I didn't really mean that. But if you want to, you know, feast your eyes on my yard, it's as good as it looks. Uh, and so I think, People will say, well, well, my neighbor especially takes great pride in his yard. That is a pleasure or satisfaction taken in something done by us or belonging to us. Okay, That's not necessarily sinful. I think uh, I'm sure that Ken takes great pride in his sons because he's got two great kids, you know. And and so you take pride. You really have pleasure in something that belongs to you. There's nothing wrong with that. The kind of pride we're concerned about here is an inordinate opinion of one's importance and or superiority, whether as cherished in the mind or as displayed in the bearing or conduct. I got that from dictionary.com, which is a, a good source for such things. But pride presumes I'm super important, and everybody else needs to notice that, right? Uh, but the most important lesson of theology, Seth, is there's only one God and you ain't him, Okay. And by the way, Tammy didn't give me a bunch of stuff to preach to you about. I just, uh, I just felt the urge, you know. I'm not supposed to follow your urges, right? Uh, pride reduces my ability, my, my ability to sense my need for God and others. It's one of my favorite words. Uh, and really, if you want to be true, uh, truthful, psychologists say that the most beautiful word in the English language, Trey, according to psychologists, Dr. Phil, is Trayton Drake. For Trey, that's pretty much his favorite word, whether he knows it or not, because we just love our name, Sarah. You're going to be a social worker. You need to find that out. Names are important for people. You respect them. But I mean mine's really pretty important to, to people full of pride. It's a deeply selfish way to think and live, and it effectively repels grace, which is why God is opposed to it. Okay, let's go to the happy ending here. Uh, this passage is telling us, among other things, that spiritual enemy number one is self-centered pride. It's deep within us, and we're going to have to counter it. So how are we going to defeat this enemy? I think we use the principle of replacement. You know, uh, you overcome pride, self-centered pride,
by embracing a lifestyle of Christ-centered humility. And whenever you brag about somebody else's humility, it kind of embarrasses them, and their spouse will say, well, he's not like that all the time. But, I mean, hanging around Michael Birch in Mexico, here's a guy who's uh, seen the grace of God largely work in his life in large ways. And one of the best things he's done for you is give you Amanda in your life, but you already know that. But he's just a, a really a deep thinker. He's got a deep-seated, uh, godly, Christ-centered humility, which is very, very winsome. And it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful thing to see. So I'm going to use Michael as a good example of that. But we defeat self-centered pride by embracing Christ-centered humility. And as Dr. Walford once told us at Dallas Seminary, humility isn't thinking less of ourselves than God says we are. It's not self-loathing. It's just thinking about ourselves less. you got Christ at the center of that pie chart, and it frees you up to love and to give to others, the lovely and the unlovely, right? And it's very, very important. What's the mechanism of living a Christ-centered life? Well, Jesus tells you this right before he gets arrested. In John 13 through 17, just before he gets arrested, he says, hey, you guys have believed in me. Now I want you to abide in me. How do you fellowship with a physically absent Savior? You abide in Christ. You recognize and respond from the heart to the person of Jesus who loves you, who saved you, who's your Lord and your best friend, and you respond to him. So, of course, you obey the rules. The same way the guy that's devoted to his wife goes on an out-of-town business trip. When the day's over, he didn't go to a strip, strip club. Why would he? He's devoted to his wife. He's, he's, he's not refraining from that because she gave him a note card that says, don't go to strip clubs. And he's, oh, uh, I'm going to go to the strip club. No, I've never been to one, by the way, just so you'll know. But uh, I've heard about them. But uh, the guy that is com- de- devoted to his wife doesn't say, well, i got a couple hours to kill tonight. Uh, maybe I'll go to a strip club with the rest of the guys. Well, no, I can't because my wife said there's a rule here. You know, it's not about rules. Christian life is about this relationship. So, of course, as we adore and submit to the lordship of our Savior, we obey the rules, but we do it as a natural outflow of our love and devotion to Jesus so we can become a world-class person without ever being impressed by ourselves. And folks who are constantly telling you how impressed they are with God probably are impressed with themselves. If they're noticing how virtuous they are, they're probably uh, cranking out a bunch of behavior modification, which will break down. This won't break down. You know, uh, you can't be abiding in Christ and lying, cheating, stealing, and, and fornicating. You, you can't be abiding in Christ and do that. Christians can do those things, but they can't be abiding in Christ and doing those things. So abiding in Christ is true self-centered humility, and it's recognizing and responding from the depth of your heart to Jesus because he saved you, because he loves you, and because now he's your Lord. And that's that's ultimately how we uh, overcome spiritual enemy number one. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, let us realize that uh, the enemy, and we've seen the enemy and he is us. And it's easy for us to get upset and aware of other people's weaknesses and flaws and failings and sins. But all of us battle this issue of pride and putting ourselves in the center of the, of the chart and putting Jesus in the co-pilot seat. And uh, our duty and our joy is to expel self-centered pride by abiding in our Savior, Jesus Christ, and living at a lifestyle of, of Christ-centered 
humility. Please sprinkle a lot of grace on this place and on all of us. Uh, to, to me, I've always felt like TBF is really a place of, of, of real grace and in love. And I think that's because so many of the core of this church have had a deeply uh, uh, welded devotion to the Lordship of Christ and to a, a lifestyle and just a mindset of godly humility. And I pray that would continue in the present day and into the future. And, and let us all um, rededicate ourselves to that kind of conscious uh, uh, approach to life, not just on Sundays and Wednesdays, but uh, uh, every day and every night, including on prom night. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.